Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's read verses uh, 6 to 10, which will be the, the content of our study this morning. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 10. Apostle Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray briefly before we begin. Help us, Lord, we pray, to understand your word, to set aside distractions, and to have the desire to know what you have communicated to us. So, Lord, give us wisdom to apply what we learn, and may your spirit have free reign to, to impress the significance of these truths onto our hearts. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Earlier this year, uh, which I think was in April, we uh, took some time together as a congregation to uh, address the in, in a sermon, address this topic or answer this question of what is the mission of the church? Uh, I think we even had a subsequent, subsequent small group discussion answering this question of what is the mission of the church. And in that study, we concluded, or I guess at least I concluded and you listened, uh, that the mission of the church is to make and mature disciples in and through the local church. We started that particular study in the book of Matthew, uh, where we looked at the Great Commission, where Jesus uh, says to his disciples uh, that they're to go into all the world to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we said that in that, there was this command to, to make and mature disciples. But then as we continued in that study, we asked this question, Okay, how did the disciples understand the commission that Christ gave them? Or we ask the question, if you were to come to the end of the Gospels and you were to, to ask the question, what happened next? The answer to that was the book of Acts. And what we saw in the book of Acts is that the way in which the disciples understood the, 
understood the commission that Christ gave them was to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel, to establish local churches, and those local churches sent out missionaries and established local churches. And that was the, the essence of the Great Commission. So, so we concluded then that the mission of the church was to make immature disciples in and through the local church. Now the motivation behind that particular sermon was a, a fear that we were tempted to be distracted from the mission that Christ has, has given us. And it seems we can be distracted in two ways. First, we can be distracted because we have confusion about what the mission is. And secondly, we can be distracted because we forget the mission altogether. So one of the main struggles of the church today is that she has been confused over her mission. And the confusion comes when we view the church as having something of a dual mission, uh, uh, both a spiritual and a socio-political agenda. And so the church, while it gives itself to the making of maturing disciples, also uh, dabbles in social good and and often then confuses uh, what the mission of the church is. And so confusion comes in, in in this regard because the mission of the church is not held to as being simply spiritual or, or, or singular in nature, the making and maturing of, of disciples. And what happens is the church starts to, to, to view itself as, as having a social political agenda or, or being involved to, to elect a, a certain presidential candidate or being involved in sort of social issues of the day. And when that happens, at, at best it becomes distracted, but oftentimes what happens is it loses the mission of making maturing disciples all together. And I'm not saying that we can't be involved in, in social causes or social good, but we need to see those things as opportunities that we may engage in, not obligations that God has, has pressed on the conscience of, of every believer. Okay, there's, there's, there's the making of maturing disciples is what God has is pressed on the conscience of, of every believer. That's what you and I and every believer here should be engaged in making and maturing disciples. God may give us opportunities to do other things, but those are opportunities, not obligations. Okay, so we need to be careful then that we're not sidetracked, and I don't want to re-preach this whole message from a few months ago, but we're not sidetracked into other things in terms of what the mission of the church is, but that the mission of the church is this commitment to making and maturing disciples in and through the local church. Now, the second way in which we become distracted is not through confusion about the mission, but forgetting the mission altogether. Because let's be honest, we live extremely busy lives. We have jobs, and we have families, and we have hobbies, and we have a number of things which, if we're honest with ourselves, we deem as really important that just aren't that important, and we cram our life packed full of these things. And what happens is the mission of the church and the emphasis on making and maturing disciples gets crowded out, and we forget the mission of, of the church. And so it's, it's helpful for us then to stop and to be reminded of why God has brought us here together so that we might represent him, be faithful to him in making and maturing disciples. Now, as we begin our study in this passage this morning, I want to remind us this, that there's a world of difference between knowing what the mission of the church is and actually having the mission as our passion. 
Hey, it's one thing to have this discussion of, okay, the, 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 the making of the maturing, the making maturing of disciples is the mission of the church. It's singular in nature. It's not a sociopolitical agenda. And it's interesting to know that, and it's good to know that. But it is a world of difference between knowing that and actually embracing and owning the mission of making and maturing disciples personally. And so as we come to this particular passage, I start with this thought because we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's heartbeat, his passion for making and maturing disciples, and I, I want us, in a sense, to, to be impacted and reminded of the importance of it as we look at the Apostle Paul's heartbeat. Now, I want us to look at this passage and, and think that this passage is in, infectious for us. Paul's joy at the making of maturing disciples is, is infectious. Now, I use the word infectious, and if anybody should know what the word infectious means, it's you and I who are living here in 2020, right? 2022. It still feels like 2020, right? Okay? Um, so we are, we've had lots of conversations about infectious diseases and uh, exposure and social distancing and masking up and, and quarantine and all of these things. So we're, in, we're familiar with this word infectious, okay? But it's this idea that we, when we look at the Apostle Paul's passion in verses 6 to 10, that his passion becomes infectious for us. That we look at it and we essentially say, I'll have what Paul's having because it looks good the way Paul responds to the, to the mission of the church, the idea of making and maturing disciples. So this morning what we want to see from this passage, verses 6 to 10 of chapter 3, is what it looks like when the mission of the church is our passion. Okay? What does it look like when the mission of the church is our passion? Now, before we get too deeply into this passage, let's set the context so we understand what's, what's taking place here. There is a transition that is happening between verse 5 and verse 6 of chapter 3. Now, if you go to all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 1, carry that through to chapter 3 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul is speaking in the past tense. And he's describing the ministry that he had among the Thessalonian believers, okay? So if you're to go back into chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, You know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. He's recounting in the past of what happened when he arrived there in, in Thessalonica. In verse number 5, he's still speaking in the past. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or pretext for greed. God is our witness. He continues in verse 7 to say, We were gentle among you. He goes on in verse 9 to say, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In verse 13, he goes on to say that, that we thank God because... But we thank God because of what happened in the past. When you, when you came, you embraced the word. You received it at, for what it is, as the word of God. And so Paul, as he's going through here, he's speaking of his, of, in the past tense of his ministry among the Thessalonians. When he comes to verse 17 of chapter 2, he's reminding them of the fact that he was torn away from them prematurely. His desire was to stay longer, to build them up in the faith. But he comes to verse 17, but, and, and we see that they were, they were forced out of Thessalonica because of persecution. In verse 18, it says, Paul wanted to come back, but Satan had hindered him. Okay, he's still speaking in the past. You come to chapter 3, 
And he says in verse 1 that when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens, and we sent Timothy to you in order that he might build you up so you're not moved by these afflictions and so that he can give a report as to how, the, how you guys are doing there in Thessalonica. Okay? So from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 5, it's all, it's all in the past tense. But the transition happens here in verse 6 when he begins to speak in the present tense. He says this, But now that Timothy has come to, you, to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. Okay, so now Timothy's coming, or Timothy has come, and he is giving this report or update on how the ministry is going there in Thessalonica. And Paul now transitions to the present tense. And he writes this, this joyful and exuberant response to the good news that he hears from Timothy's report. And that's what we have in verses 6 to 10. This joyful expression of thanksgiving to God over the, the gospel's impact among these believers from Timothy's report. And so as we look at these passages, we look at these verses, I want to break it down in this way. First, I want to consider the report that, that Timothy gives in verse 6. And then secondly, I want to look at Paul's response to Timothy's report. And he's going to say four things in this passage in response to Timothy's report. Now, as we look at these, I'm going to pepper through, pepper the, pepper through these with uh, three implications of, 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 of Paul's response for our, for our life and about being passionate uh, for the mission of the church. Okay, so let's begin, first of all, in verse 6 with Timothy's report. Okay, as verse 6 begins... We see that Timothy, as I said, has just returned from Thessalonica. And he's likely been gone for a month, maybe two months, as he's, uh, as he's there in Thessalonica. At the same time, Silas is in Macedonia, building up and encouraging the church in Philippi. So Paul has been alone in, in, in Athens. He's moved over to Corinth at this point before Timothy and Silas uh, join him again to give this report. And all these details you can see in Acts chapter, 16, or Acts chapter 17 and 18. As Timothy presents his update to Paul in verse 6, he mentions two things. He says, he reports first on the good news of their faith and love, and secondly on the fact that they remember their missionaries kindly and long to see them again. Now let's look first at this expression, the good news of their faith and love. It's interesting here, the, the word good news. This is the only time in the New Testament that it, it is not referring to the good news of the gospel. Here, this, this good news or this gospel is, is a reference to the, to the faith and the love of the Thessalonians. Now, it's also interesting to note the words that Paul uses to describe Timothy's report or, or how the Thessalonian believers are doing. Okay, because imagine this. Timothy shows up. He gives a report to Paul. He probably tells lots of anecdotes and, and, and examples of how the Thessalonian believers are doing. And as Paul sums up the good news, he says this, it's the good news of your faith and love. Now, he uses these two words because this, faith and love, is the essence of genuine Christianity. 
faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love for the brothers and, and sisters. And this is how the, 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 excuse me, the Thessalonians excuse me, can be described. Okay? And it, it speaks of their faith in verse 7 and the fact in verse 8 that they're standing fast in the Lord. In chapter 4 and verse 9, we're going to come to this in, in the coming weeks, but he says of this about their love, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So what was, what was standing out about these believers was their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their, their standing firm in it, and their love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the reason I say that, that these two characteristics are the essence of Christianity is because it's what we find repeated through the New Testament. Now, sometimes we could add hope as a third virtue, faith, hope, and love, but sometimes Paul just speaks of their faith and their love, right? So Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Colossians 1, 3 and 4, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So these two characteristics are sort of the defining characteristics of genuine believers. Now, we're going to come to this in a few weeks, and we talk about chapter 4, because we're going to spend a lot of time on love. But let me just park here on this thought. Okay, these distinctives of faith and love, or faith working itself out in love, we might say, these are the distinctive characteristics of the redeemed community. Okay, faith working itself out in love. There is no more powerful testimony to the gospel than faith working itself out in love. Now, we tend to think that something more flashy is necessary to demonstrate the power of the gospel. Right? We have this, this mindset. We were talking about this in the membership class this morning. We have this mindset that, like, if somebody really famous will get saved— then the gospel will advance in, in a much more powerful way. Like if Kanye West gets saved, right? The gospel is going to advance like it's never advanced before. Or if we can have some famous apologist who just defends the gospel uh, better than any other individual, then, then more and more people will come to Christ. But what we see in the scriptures is that the most powerful testimony for the advance of the gospel is how it transforms the hearts of believers through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the love that they have for one another as they live and serve and interact with one another. That's the most powerful testimony to how the gospel transforms our lives. And so as Paul, as Paul talks about these things, he, he, he commends them for their faith and for their love. So the, Thess- the, Thess- the I, they, I don't know why Thessalonica is even a city. Okay. But so the Thessalonians, all right? So their faith separated them from the world, but their love brought them closer together, right? Because they were persecuted 
They're isolated with one another, and it's their love for one another and the transforming power of the gospel that brings them together. The second thing that Paul says, or that Timothy says in this report, is that he, is that the Thessalonians remember them kindly and long to see them. So in case Paul was concerned that the Thessalonians were harboring bitterness because of, of the early departure, Timothy would have brought, brought back this warm report to encourage the Apostle Paul that, no, these brothers and sisters, they remember you with fondness, and they long to see you just as you long to see them. Now, Timothy brings back this report, and upon receiving this report, it's probably likely that the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians almost immediately. Because the expressions we find in verses 7 to 10 are the kinds of expressions that that, that overflow immediately after receiving good news. Like it hasn't been weeks, it hasn't been months, it's almost immediate that Paul receives this good news and hears his natural response to the good news that he receives. So at this point, what we want to turn to is Paul's response and four things that he says in response to Timothy's good report. Okay, so the first thing we mention here, and we see in verse 7, is that the Apostle Paul talks about his comfort in the midst of affliction. Okay, so he receives the report from Timothy, and notice verse 7, he says this. In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Now notice that expression, in all our distress and affliction. Okay, this is, this is let me give you just a brief description of what the Apostle Paul's last few months had looked like. In Philippi, he is beaten and imprisoned unlawfully for proclaiming Christ. He dusts himself off and he comes to Thessalonica. The wounds are still fresh, and he's persecuted and expelled from Thessalonica after a short amount of time. So he goes down to Berea. And the Jews from Thessalonica hear that Paul's in Berea. So they come down, stir up the crowd, kick Paul out of Berea as well. So he goes to Athens and proclaims uh, in, in the temples there. And he is rejected and scorned in Athens. So when Paul says, in all our distress and affliction, he means it. Okay, in the midst of all this destruction and affliction, th this good news comes to him. Now, in, a, in addition to facing affliction, Paul had the internal pressure of caring deeply about the Thessalonian believers. Right? You remember what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's, when he's, when he's lamenting over all of the trials he's had and, and shipwrecked numerous times and, 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 and hungry and, and sleepless nights. And then he says this, that in addition to all of this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And here we might say, especially the church of Thessalonica. So Paul's afflicted on the outside, he's anxious on the inside, and he's, he's worried sick that the Thessalonian church had not made it. Right? If you look back to chapter 3 and verse 5, he says our fear is that the tempter tempted you and that our labor was in vain. Our fear was that the Thessalonian church was not going to make it. And so that burdened Paul. But now, Timothy brings back this good news. 
And Paul says that it is a source of great encouragement that these brothers and sisters are remaining faithful. This is not unusual for the Apostle Paul to have this this encouragement and joy in the midst of affliction. Right? You don't have to turn there, but just think back to Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes from prison and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay, think about that mindset. Yeah, I'm in prison. It's not ideal. But I'm encouraged because what's happened to me is helping to serve the advance of the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and the rest of my imprisonment for Christ. The rest of my imprisonment for Christ is for Christ. And he goes on to say, as he finishes that section, that he will rejoice in the fact that he is in prison and that the gospel is advancing in those circumstances. So it's not unusual to see that Paul, even in the midst of hardship, so passionate for the mission of the church, for the making and maturing of disciples, that even in the midst of affliction, his heart is encouraged. Okay, now hold that thought, and we're going to come back to it and look at an implication in a minute. But let's move to the second thing that Paul says in verse 8, that he has life because of the faith of these believers. So the second thing Paul says in verse 8, he says, For now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord. Or we might translate that word if as since. For now we live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Now, as I mentioned, Paul faced significant troubles and had the weight of these churches on his heart. But notice what, he else, what else he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. He says, at, at one point in his ministry in Asia, he was so utterly burdened beyond strength that he despaired of life itself. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, for most of us, we have not despaired to this, to this extent, where we have despaired of, of life itself. Some of us may, some of us may have not. But in his ministry and his affliction, he thought that he had received a death sentence. And it was probably not unusual for Paul to feel this way. He suffered a lot. And he was human. And so for him to respond in this way was probably actually quite natural. But instead of death, what he receives is life at Timothy's report. Right? Isn't that what he says? He says, for we live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Dying on the outside, but renewed daily on the inside because the gospel has taken root and it is advancing. Now this moves us to our first implication from this passage. When the mission of the church is our passion, we find encouragement and life even in hardship because the gospel is advancing. Okay, so when the, when the mission of the church is our passion, we find encouragement and life even in the hardship, even in hardship because the gospel is advancing. So it's possible to be burdened and suffer affliction and to at the same time find encouragement in the task of making and maturing disciples. Like life doesn't have to be perfect in order for us to rejoice in the fact that God is doing a work to, to build his kingdom. 
I've seen this just numerous, numerous times in my years of, of, of pastoral ministry, having the privilege of visiting someone in the hospital who's in the process of dying. And the way they face death is with this, this bold confidence in the Lord. And they'll say things like this. The Lord's giving me an opportunity to share the gospel with the nurse that comes my way or the, the doctor that comes my way. And in the midst of the affliction and in the face of death, there's this encouragement because the gospel is advancing even in the midst of their difficult circumstances. Now, the only way to describe that is to say that this is the case, that, that, that the mission of the church is their passion that they can be joyful and encouraged in the midst of hardship because the gospel is advancing. That's how we know if, 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 the, if the mission of the church is our heartbeat. That's how we know if we own it personally, is if in the midst of affliction, we can be encouraged the gospel is going forward. It's this kind of, of, of heartbeat that we want to see cultivated in our own lives that no matter what conflicts or afflictions we face, we rejoice because the gospel is advancing. And sometimes the Lord even uses our difficult circumstances to see the gospel advance in a way that it wouldn't otherwise advance. And in that, as we say with Paul, we rejoice. Now let's look at the third response of the Apostle Paul here in verse number 9. We see this joyful thanksgiving to God for his work in the lives of others. Okay, so, so in verses 7 and 8, we see that Paul has received this new lease on life. And now this new lease on life works itself out in a prayer in verses 9 and 10. Okay, so notice what he says. He says in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. It's impossible to even describe the, the genuine joy that, that the Apostle Paul feels here, okay? But he bursts in this, this thanksgiving at Timothy's report, and, and he asks this rhetorical question, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? And it's a rhetorical question to which the answer is, there isn't enough thanksgiving to give to God. That's, that's Paul's point. There isn't enough praise in the world that Paul can give to God to, to appropriately thank him for the work that he's doing in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. And in this sense, the Apostle Paul is saying something like Psalm 116, 12, where the psalmist says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And the answer is, there isn't anything we can really render to the Lord that would be an appropriate or, or, or fulfilling exp expression of thanksgiving to God. Right? You remember the, the last verse of Isaac Watts' hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, where he says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. So love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. And what Watts is saying is there, if I own the whole world to give it to God, it wouldn't even be an appropriate expression of thanks for all that he has, has, has done for us. Now notice here, there's no, there's no hint of self-recognition in, in the Apostle Paul. Well, Timothy, look what we did. Look what we accomplished. 
No, all the praise and the glory goes to the Lord because it's he who began the good work in them and it's he who will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's thanksgiving here, but there's also joy. He expresses joy in the fact that God is at work. Right? If you go back to chapter 2, in verses 19 and 20, Paul describes the Thessalonians this way. He says, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, he says? For you are our glory and joy. You, you want to know what Paul's heartbeat was? It, was? it was seeing the gospel take root in the Thessalonians and transform their lives. And this is expressed in joyful thanksgiving to God. So here's our second implication. When the mission is our passion, then it becomes our source of thanksgiving and joy. When is the last time that you stopped and, and, and paused and, and considered what God is doing among your brothers and sisters in Christ or what he's doing in giving you gospel opportunities and you stopped and you thanked God for how the gospel is at work. Right? There's, there's nothing more encouraging for us as brothers and sisters in Christ than when we see growth, gospel growth in our midst. Either people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or people, people maturing in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a cause for great thanks and celebration to the Lord. Like, there's a lot of things I get excited about, okay? Like, I'm hoping the Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl this year, and I would be excited about that. And I get excited on those rare occasions when I can shoot a low round of golf, all right? So I would be excited about that. But all of those things are, are passing. They're fleeting. But nothing brings more joy and thanksgiving than seeing God at work in the midst of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we respond like Paul does. What thanksgiving can we offer to God? There isn't, a, there isn't enough thanksgiving to appropriately offer to God. Well, this brings us to our last response to the Apostle Paul. We see that Paul prays for more opportunities to minister in verse 10. So all of this leads to this prayer from Paul. He says, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now notice that phrase. We pray earnestly night and day. That is an intense expression by the Apostle Paul. And it gives the idea that he is begging God constantly that he would allow Paul to go back and minister among the Thessalonians and to, to see them face to face. Okay, his passion is to see them built up. He goes on to say that he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. So he's praying to God that he would give opportunity to minister among these brothers and sisters. So this leads us to our third implication. When the mission of the church, the making maturing disciples, when the mission is our passion, it leads to earnest prayer for more opportunities. Okay, so when, 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 we, when we invest ourselves in the making and maturing disciples, it is an exciting thing. There's probably no more exciting work 
on the planet than to be involved in making and maturing disciples. And when we get a taste of it, and the taste of how good it is, then, then we, we pray to God that we would have more of those kinds of opportunities. I'm, I'm grateful even this past week, uh, as I, I was been praying for, for a friend for, for a number of, uh, number of weeks. I hadn't seen him in, in a couple of months. And just the Lord providentially uh, brought our paths together, and I got to connect, just talk for a brief moment. But you have that desire walking away from those conversations. I, I want more of these opportunities. I want to see the gospel take root in people's lives, see them come to Christ, see people built up in the faith. And when you get a taste of that, you start to ask God, give me more of those opportunities. And when you're at that point, that's how we know that the mission is our heartbeat. So friends, there's, there's a lot of things that we can give ourselves to in this life. There are a lot of things we can do to keep ourselves busy. There are a lot of distractions that we have. But it's time for us to get back to what Christ has called us to do. The making and maturing of disciples in and through the local church. And we don't just need to know what the mission is, but the mission needs to be our passion. Like, this is what we're all about. And when we do that, well, we start to respond like the Apostle Paul. Joyful thanksgiving at God's work, asking for more opportunities, and even in the midst of affliction, we're joyful that the gospel is advancing because our heartbeat is seeing people come to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask that you would stir our hearts with these words so that as we see you at work, we would respond as Paul does here. That even in hardship and affliction, we're encouraged because the word is advancing. And it's our joy and expression of thanks to you when the word advances. And Lord, we pray for more opportunities like this. Lord, give us the wisdom and the boldness to to accurately and appropriately share you with others. Lord, would you give us opportunity after opportunity, and may we have the boldness to walk through those doors that you open. Help this, Lord, to be our heartbeat, for it's in Christ's name.